Uh, greetings to all of you. I want to welcome all of us at Center Street Church, uh, those of us uh, here at Center Campus, as well as those joining us from our campus in Northwest Calgary, Bridgeland, Airdrie, and South Calgary. I also want to welcome our online viewers as well. Uh, we are in a sermon series from the Gospel of Matthew, and we're calling the first part of the series Revealing Jesus. Matthew, the Gospel writer, highlights the identity of Jesus in his opening chapters. In the last two sermons, we've seen Jesus is the promised one who came from the lineage of Abraham and David, and he is the savior of the whole world. Uh, today, we're going to talk about yet another attribute of Jesus that is so relevant to our season of Advent. Jesus identifies himself as a man of sorrows, and the holiday season is associated with mostly positive emotions, happiness, spreading cheer, giving gifts, visiting family and friends. And there's a social pressure to join in the festive mood and celebration, eating, partying, relaxing, sharing. You turn on the radio and all you hear are happy songs. It's the most wonderful time of the year. It's the happiest season of all. Tis the season to be jolly, fa la 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 <laughs> In a way, it is true. This is a happy season, lots of things to celebrate about. Now, the only reason I go to the mall is to earn some brownie points with my wife. <laughs> so the last time I went to the mall, I saw the lights and decorations, and I was spellbound. It was spectacular. So this is the time of the year. The malls dazzle, houses are decorated, uh, Christmas lights in different parts of our city. They all look gorgeous. This is also a season of endless Christmas parties. I counted and I realized I have to attend at least 10 Christmas parties this season hosted by various groups here in our church. And most of all, I just love the opportunity to share the gospel this season because this is one of the best times of the year to communicate the reason why Jesus came. So granted, we have plenty of things to celebrate. The majority of the people go with the flow of the season. But at the same time, we have to keep in mind, the holidays are not a fun time for some people. They actually view it as a time of survival. They simply endure this time of the year and hope that it will be January 2nd and life will just go back to normal. Or perhaps more than any other years, this year I'm sensitive to those who are struggling during this holiday season. And I hope that this message will bring comfort to you. Just a few weeks ago, I did a funeral for a young man and something his dad said has stayed with me. Christmas is going to be very different this year. It's that haunting realization that there is an empty chair at the dining table. You're flooded with all kinds of memories. Now, this is close to home as I walk with my wife, who's grieving the loss of her sister who passed away earlier in the summer. And I started to notice my normally cheerful wife just finds it a little bit harder to get ready for Christmas parties. And oftentimes, one, she wants to be left alone. And I'm a pastor. I'm a professional. 
I deal with grief on a regular basis. I know how to handle this, right? I tell you, it's very different when it's someone in your own family. As you can see, today I'm speaking on something that is very close to my heart, and I believe the Lord has put this message today for a reason. Because I know a handful of people, at least in our church, who are facing a terminal illness this Christmas season. There are others in a relational crisis who've gone through a divorce or a relational breakup just this year. And Christmas is going to be hard. There are others who are struggling financially, and this season is going to push them even deeper in their debts. And then we have this cultural epidemic of loneliness where there are many people in our city who have nowhere to go to during this Christmas season. Now, it's a sobering realization that there are people around us who are actually not looking forward to Christmas. Today, we're going to find comfort in a tragic story. It's also part of the Christmas narrative. We don't talk about this story very often. We gloss over it. Our Christmas dramas certainly don't showcase it. Call it the forgotten story of Christmas. But it offers a ray of hope. Hope to those who are feeling anxious this holiday season. I'm going to ask us to stand as we read our text for today from Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 to 18. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that uh, he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, a weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Lord, we ask for your comforting presence to rest with us today. I pray that you would do what you alone can do. I reach out to us personally. I meet us at the point of our need. I know there are some people here who are hurting this holiday season. So minister your words of encouragement to them. And stir up in all of our hearts a heart of compassion to reach out to those who are in need. So we give this time, Lord, to the leading of your spirit. We ask this in the powerful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. One of the most popular bars in the Chinese city of Nanjing has just a sofa, a few tables, 
and tissues, lots of tissues. A news item reported that this is the city's first cry bar where customers can sit and cry for $6 per hour. <laughs> yes, nothing is free. At least it's better than us here in North America who pay $150 to cry in a counselor's office. So I heard that these cry bars are becoming popular in China. It is a growing trend. The owner says he opened the bar when clients of his last business said they often wanted a place to cry, but didn't know when or where it would be appropriate to do so. Now think about this. Even though we downplay this emotion, sorrow is actually quite dominant during the Christmas season. That's why our text today is so relevant because it brings to surface a side of Christmas that has remained hidden. Now, we are quite familiar with the bright, cheery side of Christmas, the tidings of comfort and joy. But Matthew doesn't just focus on the bright side of Christmas, but he also gives us a picture of the dark side of Christmas. And this makes Christmas real. And this is not a pie in the sky, a hollow, empty cultural holiday celebration. But this is God entering into a world of sorrow and brokenness. And he did not keep a safe distance. And the world that he entered in was not a sanitized, idealistic world. But he entered into muck and mire in order to rescue us. Next weekend, you will hear Pastor Wayne Smeal preach on the Magi from the East who came to visit baby Jesus in Bethlehem. Now, to give you a little bit of the backdrop, Herod the Great was appointed as king of the Jews by the Roman Empire. So the Magi, the wise men, came to Herod inquiring about uh, this long prophesied figure of royalty. And Herod basically responded to them, Oh, how wonderful of you gentlemen to come from so far believing in a Jewish prophecy. You know, our prophets say that this king will be born in Bethlehem. Do me a favor. When you find who this king is, come and tell me ASAP so I can go and worship him too. Now, Herod presented himself as a spiritual man to the Magi. But behind that was a diabolic spirit. And lo and behold, the Magi find baby Jesus in a house in Bethlehem, and they give him gifts fitting for a king and worship him. Mary and Joseph, they would have been over the moon. Unexpected visitors from distant place come to affirm how special their child was. They offer gifts and worship him. After all the struggles that they had gone through, journey to Bethlehem when Mary was fully pregnant and giving birth in a stable. Finally, things started to look a little better. Mary and Joseph say their goodbyes to, their, uh, to the Magi and go to bed, not knowing things were about to change drastically. When the Magi came to know about Herod's uh, true intentions, Rather than reporting the whereabouts of the baby, they go home on an alternate route. Herod realized that he had been deceived. There was now a competitor to his throne, and he was going to do everything in his power to stop this rival. 
You see, Herod was an insecure man, a maniac who was ruthless in every way. And all of a sudden, baby Jesus was in danger. The God who protects the entire universe was now in need of protection. And at the right time, Joseph receives a second dream and hears the voice of the angel speaking to him. So Matthew 2, verses 13 and 14 tells us, when they, the Magi, had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt. Now what happened here illustrates that Jesus is familiar with suffering. Now, as soon as the Magi left, here comes an urgent command from the angel, get up and leave to Egypt. Now we can only guess how old Jesus was, anywhere between six months to a year and a half. So whatever livelihood Joseph had in Bethlehem, he had to leave everything behind with no time to prepare for a big move and gather all their possessions and belongings. This young family fled overnight in the cover of darkness to a foreign country as refugees. Mary held tight the little baby Jesus, her precious son in her arms, as they went on this long, arduous journey to a foreign country. This is very much part of the Christmas narrative. You know, if our idea of Christmas is a happy family sitting cozily around a fire in the living room by a beautifully decorated Christmas tree and opening presents with smiling faces, you will not find that in the Bible. But what you do find is a family scrambling for safety because of a cruel dictator who was after their life. Years ago, my wife and I met a woman from Libya here in Calgary, and she told us some of her experiences, the most harrowing experience a woman can possibly go through. She had just given birth to a baby in the hospital in, back in her home country. And within a few hours, there was a bomb blast in that hospital building. This woman narrowly escaped and had to run for safety in the middle of the night with her newborn baby just hours after birth. Can you imagine that? The refugee crisis today has become an epidemic. Now, I personally met refugees from Sri Lanka who came to Canada years ago on a rusty vessel, a vessel that was clearly unfit for ocean voyages. And I couldn't believe the extent of risk that they took in loading up their families, including their young children, and sailed on the big sea all the way across here to Canada. This year, a United Methodist Church in California is taking flack for their nativity scene that portrays Jesus and his parents as caged refugees resembling what's happening in the U.S.-Mexico border. And the display shows the holy family separated in their own individual cages, each topped with barbed wire. And the baby Jesus is wrapped in a silver blanket, similar to the ones that the migrants get at the detention centers. 
And without going into the political side of things, what I find most amazing is the fact that our Lord and Savior whom we, we worship was once a refugee who understands the plight of suffering people today. Jesus knows from experience what it means to be the least in the society, the bottommost rung of the ladder. Prophet Isaiah predicted hundreds of years ago before Christ's coming about the nature of the Messiah. He wrote in Isaiah 53, verse 3, he was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows acquainted with deepest grief. Jesus knew pain and sorrow firsthand. He was a man of sorrows who knew and experienced grief on a regular basis. God did not make it easy for Jesus. He could have been born in a rich royal family in the lap of luxury. No. God personally came down and he did not play by a different set of rules. This is the world he chose to enter a world of brutal empires and dictator-type leaders, political refugees, and unjust treatment of the weak. Rather than keeping a safe distance from all this chaos, Jesus dives right in. And that is why we can say with confidence today, Jesus knows our struggles. He identifies with our holiday blues. That very thing that is breaking your heart today, Jesus understands he is acquainted with our deepest griefs. Mary, Joseph, and little baby Jesus lived in a foreign country as refugees and had to fend for themselves. And Matthew, the gospel writer, saw this as a fulfillment of prophecy. Matthew chapter 2, verse 15, it says, And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Now this is a quote from the Old Testament book of Hosea. Now if you're the curious type, and you go to Hosea, to locate this verse and read the context of Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, you will scratch your head. You will wonder, how can this be a prophecy? There's no sense that this verse in Hosea 11 is speaking of a future fulfillment. And that's why critics accuse New Testament writers of manipulating the Old Testament, of twisting the meaning of verses and presenting them as prophetic fulfillments. But if you examine this carefully, that is just not a valid criticism. The New Testament writers were not being irresponsible in the use of Scripture. After all, Matthew was writing to a Jewish audience who had well versed in the Old Testament. Now, we need to understand that there are different kinds of prophecies. There are some predictive prophecies that refer to a specific future event. A clear example from Matthew would be the fact that Jesus will be born of a virgin and he will be born in the town of Bethlehem. Uh, they are referring to a definite event that was prophesied long time ago and comes to pass in the future. 
But there are other prophecies that are not predictive in nature, but they serve as typologies. A classic example of it is what we are dealing in with our, in our text here in Matthew and how Matthew is using Hosea. Now, just as Israel was called as God's son in the Old Testament, they were the people chosen by God and had a covenantal relationship with God. Now, Jesus is revealed as God's son par excellence who walks in the footsteps of Israel. Jesus recapitulates Israel's history. Where Israel failed as a nation, Jesus succeeds. And as the true Israelite, Jesus accomplishes the mission that Israel failed to accomplish all along. And we know the story from the Old Testament that God called the Israelites out of Egypt. The Exodus served as a powerful symbol of God's salvation and deliverance. Now in the same way, when Jesus came out of Egypt, It points to a new and greater exodus, the ultimate deliverance that he will bring. A new era of salvation was about to unfold through the coming of Jesus Christ. So that's the aspect of the prophecy that Matthew is highlighting as he draws an analogy here. Now Herod was raging with anger that he had been deceived. Call him the original Grinch who stole Christmas. You know, we know a lot about King Herod, thanks to Josephus, who was a first century Jewish historian. Herod was a remarkably successful politician who worked hand in hand with Rome. He rebuilt the great temple in Jerusalem. But in the midst of all of his success, there was another side to Herod. He had 10 wives and number of sons whom he feared would scheme to take his throne. So he put to death three of his own sons out of suspicion of treason. He killed one of his wives. He murdered several members of his own family, brothers, uncles, cousins. He clearly was a monster of a man. Ironically, when Herod was dying, He feared that nobody would mourn his death. So he ordered several Jewish leaders to be arrested on false charges and commanded that they be killed the moment he dies. And that way people will not celebrate his death, but will have something to cry about. So killing babies was no big deal for a brutal guy like this. Tragedy hit Bethlehem. And our text tells us in verse 16, when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and his vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Bethlehem was a small town of about 1,500 people. So when we think of baby boys under two years age, we're looking at a smaller number, scholars say anywhere between 10 to 30. And some critics claim that there is no historical evidence that an event such as this took place in Bethlehem. Think about it. In an age of mass violence and great atrocities, 
the killing of a dozen babies don't make it to history books. But God notices it. And he includes this as part of our Christmas narrative. While Jesus escaped, some of the little toddlers that he played with, maybe some from his own extended family, as it was the town of his father, Bethlehem. This was a mini holocaust. His little boys under two years old were massacred. And this story of unimaginable sorrow and injustice is also part of the Christmas story. One of the most painful sights you will ever see is the tears of a mother for her children. I've seen mothers shedding tears over their children who were sick. I witnessed the tears of mothers whose children have gone wayward. I wept with mothers who have lost their child. And you will not come across a more emotional sight here on earth than a mother in distress over her children. And yet, every day as I watch the news, I'm reminded we live in a broken world where mothers and fathers endure untold suffering and their hearts shatter over all kinds of tragedies. Weeping and lament were part of the first Christmas story, and it is true even today in our world. Christmas is very realistic. Matthew points out yet another prophetic fulfillment in our text as he quotes from Jeremiah. Matthew chapter 2, verse 18. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. This is a lament taken from the book of Jeremiah, chapter 31. Rachel is the representative figure for the moms of Israel. She was the matriarch. And if you look at the context in Jeremiah, chapter 31, the children of Judah were being taken as captives to Babylon. The Babylonian empire was barbaric. Ramah was this little town close to Jerusalem, and this was the site where the Jewish people were rounded up before they were being marched to Babylon. Families were separated, causing heart-wrenching agony. Husbands gazed on their wives for one last time. Children were snatched from the arms of mothers. Thousands were killed, and the remaining were taken to Babylon and will not return to their homeland for a very long time. And it resulted in weeping and mourning as the Rachels, the moms of Israel, wept and mourned at this great tragedy. And in the context of Jeremiah chapter 31 are also words of comfort and reassurance promising the restoration of Israel. So right after the reference to Rachel weeping, the very next verse points out in Jeremiah 31, 16 and 17, this is what the Lord says. Restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your work will be rewarded, declares the Lord. They will return from the land of the enemy, so there is hope 
for your descendants, declares the Lord, your children will return to their own land. See, Rachel is now being comforted by God because God is going to do a new work. He who sees the tears of Rachel will bring the people who went on captivity back to their homeland. So the people who are deported to Babylon will once again settle back in Judah. So God is encouraging the weeping Rachels. Everything is not lost. There is hope. There is a future that is awaiting you. And this is the parallel that Matthew wants to draw from Jeremiah chapter 31. Because of sin, the whole human race has gone on a long exile away from God. And as a result, there is such deep sorrow and brokenness in our world. But now, through the coming of Jesus, we will be brought back home from this long exile. Through Jesus, we have this ultimate homecoming that is made possible, not from Babylon to Judah, but from our sins to forgiveness, from darkness to light, from death to life, from judgment to salvation. All of these things we receive through the coming of Jesus. So the Rachel's, so the Rachel's of our world today, whose hearts have been crushed by circumstances, can now find hope in Christ who notices your pain, who sees your brokenness, who identifies with your tears and promises to do something about it. In fact, Christmas is for those who are grieving and buried in the pain of the past. For it communicates to us loudly and clearly that God has not forgotten you that he is not leaving you alone in your sorrow, but he promises to restore you, to renew you, to heal your hurts, and fill you with a fresh new hope. Weeping may endure for a night, but Christmas declares that joy will come in the morning. Maybe you read this story, and you wonder in your head, Jesus escapes miraculously. He gets whisked away by his parents, and other little boys get slaughtered. How can this be fair? How does this make sense? How can we find comfort in a tragedy like this? This is how you make sense. Jesus was spared for now in order to face a day when the angels will not intervene. He was rescued as a baby because God had this moment in mind when 33 years later, Jesus would die a horrific death on the cross. And this time, he will not be saved from it. There will be no divine intervention. The angels will be silent, and Jesus' parents wouldn't be around to whisk him away to a safe place because this death was necessary to save us all. And that would be a day when Mary would join with the Rachels to weep, when a sword will pierce her own soul. And referring to Jesus on the cross, prophet Isaiah once again wrote 800 years in advance of Christ's crucifixion, these words, Isaiah 53 verse 4, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. 
the reason there is pain and sorrow around us is because we live in a broken, fractured world. A world that has chosen its own way, the path of sin, rather than living up to God's ideals. But here's the good news. Jesus made our griefs his own, our sorrows as if it were his. He loaded them up and carried them on his back so we wouldn't have to. And on the cross, Jesus bore our sin and the consequences of our sin. Sorrow and grief are a result of the brokenness caused by Adam and Eve's original sin. And Jesus took the penalty upon himself on the cross. And therein lies hope for all of us who grieve. That Jesus, who suffered in our place, who suffered for our sins and its consequences, has conquered and won the decisive victory. Things will not remain the same, but one day he will make all things right. It's only a matter of time. And what does Jesus do today? As our Savior and Redeemer, he intercedes on our behalf before God for all of our needs, for all of our sorrows and heartbreaks, we today have a divine intercessor before God. And he promises us today that no tribulation or sorrow or pain will separate us from his love. Your tears have not gone unnoticed. Your heartbreaks have never been ignored. And God himself will wipe away your tears. That is the hope of the gospel. As the songwriter wrote, man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came. Ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. You know, just for a moment, I want to speak directly to those who are grieving, going through a difficult circumstance in your life. And as you look at this, upcoming Christmas, you know in your heart that it's going to be a difficult one for you. Now, I don't have a, a magic formula to fix your pain. But know this. Sadness doesn't mean you're struggling in your faith. It doesn't mean something is inherently wrong with you. Crying isn't necessarily bad. Tears signify a powerful, God-given emotion. And they are there for a reason. Many of us, after a good cry, feel a lot lighter because tears have the ability to wash our soul. Standing at the tomb of Lazarus, Jesus wept. And the Bible tells us, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed. Another important thing to know is Christmas is a cultural holiday. Something that we have created. The trappings of the holiday season are all a product of our own invention. There's nothing spiritual about it. I remember serving in the northwestern part of India where Christmas Day was like any other day. Because Christians were such a minority, nobody made a big deal about Christmas. 
No fanfare, no bright lights, no Christmas trees, no big presents. And yet, those were some of the best Christmases I've ever had. See, from a biblical theological point of view, Christmas is not the be-all and end-all. Christmas is certainly not the highlight of our Christian calendar. Christmas is incomplete without Good Friday and Easter and Pentecost and the second coming of Jesus that we all await. All of these things are interconnected. One is not about the other. No wonder the Gospels don't spend too much time on the Christmas narrative. We have minimum information in two Gospels, and two other Gospels skip it altogether. So what I'm saying here is it is not irreverent to feel sad during the Christmas season. And if you're in a season of sadness and grief, there is no spiritual obligation to get on with this festive mood and pretend to be jolly. It's something our culture imposes on us, and as Christians, we don't play by the rules of the culture. But having said that, I also would encourage you not to isolate yourself not to be sulking all alone, because that rarely helps. We heal better in community, and you will have to allow some trusted people into your life to walk with you in the season of sadness. Now let me speak to the rest of us. A few years ago, Pastor Rick and Kay Warren's son ended up taking his life after a long battle with mental illness. Kay Warren, in her article in Christianity Today, spoke about her struggles during this Christmas time. Uh, What was most painful to Kay was not just the cheery Christmas cards that she received, but the fact that none of the cards made mention of the loss of her precious son. Not acknowledging this tragic loss was the most painful. And she goes on to say how we, as North Americans, are uncomfortable with raw emotions. There are many cultures that express grief differently. There is lament, loud mourning, and expression of sorrow that is heart-rending but necessary to wash away the pain. But Westerners handle grief differently. We keep it to ourselves. We bury it. And sometimes we need to have the courage to open up and share our grief with others. So maybe if you know of a person in pain, it is not a good idea to gloss over their loss and pain. But actually be bold in talking to them about that very loss. And more importantly, be a listening ear by inviting them into your life. You know, the last few years, we've made it a family tradition to celebrate Christmas with others who don't have any family here in Calgary. So we invite Christians and non-Christians, and our house is full of people. 
And it has brought us so much joy. In fact, I can call this as the highlight of our Christmas season. And maybe you need to include someone who's hurting that you know of to celebrate Christmas with your family. Don't just make this into a private affair that just revolves around your nuclear home. Invite others so they can be blessed as well. See, Jesus continues to identify with our sorrows. But one of the primary ways that he does that today is through his body, the church, because we are the hands and feet of Jesus. So as we see hurt and pain around us this season, let's not turn a blind eye. But like Jesus, enter into other people's pain so we can in turn bring healing and restoration to those who are hurting. You know, as we come to an end of our service today, I'm going to ask you to just close your eyes and remain seated. This is an opportunity for you to respond to what you heard. And even as I was preparing this message, my mind went to people that I know in our congregation who I have walked with. And I know that they're going, going through a very difficult time. There are a number of you here who are struggling during this season. And I want you to know that we are a spiritual family. We are called to love one another and be there for one another. And when one part of the body is hurting, we all feel the pain. So if you are going through a, a difficult time right now, and you know that this Christmas is going to be a hard one for you, and the Lord has put on my heart to pray for you today, so would you mind standing wherever you are? so I can pray and intercede for you that uh, you would have a new perspective and God would give you a fresh new sense of joy and peace. So wherever you are, just stand up right now. There's nothing to be ashamed about. It's just, as I said, we are a family, right? We, we care for one another and it's okay for us to be able to express our need for help before God. Yeah. If you're sitting next to someone who is up, would you mind just putting your hand on their shoulder just to encourage them? Let me pray. Lord, we thank you for being such a compassionate God. That you came down to our level. That you are not just a God who is lofty and high and way out there, but you are our Emmanuel, our God, who is with us, who understands our heartbreaks, who knows our pain. So I pray today for every person standing right now. Would you put your arms of love around them and give them an embrace that you would, Lord, Walk with them every step of the way that they would know that they are not alone, but you are with them through the struggle and infuse them with a fresh new hope that comes from you, a joy that is not based on our circumstances, a joy unspeakable and full of glory that you lavish upon your children. So grant it, Lord, I pray. I pray for the ministry of your Holy Spirit, even right now, 
that you would fill them, that you would give them the grace that they need in the midst of the challenges. And Lord, as they leave, may their burdens be lifted up. May they know that you have borne their sorrow. I pray for the rest of us here. Would you give us, Lord, a compassionate heart that where we see hurts, may we be agents of Jesus and stretch forth your healing hands so others can be blessed by it. And even as we leave this place, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of our Heavenly Father, and the sweet, unfailing fellowship of the Holy Spirit may rest and abide with each and every one of us, both now and forevermore. Amen. Well, if you have a prayer request, we have prayer partners available who will be happy to pray with you. God bless you.